Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. I'm here with Mukanko. You are your old pal Ocho. Hello. We've got to start sensationally with a retraction. It turns out that I unwittingly misled the podcast last week when I said the first free series of No Place Like Home were available on Divida in the UK. And actually, it turns out that that's not the case. It's actually the first two series. So my apologies. I can only assure you that it will not happen again, principally because we've already discussed No Place Like Home, so the chances of me talking about the DVD release of the show is, is very unlikely to come up in the future. Today, we are hopping in the DeLorean. We're going to slam our foot on the accelerator, and we're going to go back to 1988. Now, previously, DCT and I have looked into the time capsule at shows from a particular year. However, we've always planned those shows. This show is organic. This show wasn't really meant to be. It just sort of happened. The theme that's running through all of these shows is that they're all one-hit wonders. Well, one series wonders. I'm not sure if any of them could be classified as a hit. Because if they were hits, why didn't they get a second series? There are a number of shows from 1988 and indeed many years which are only intended to run for one series. An example being the Ronnie Barker vehicle Clarence, which was in 1988. Now, of course, Ronnie Barker had already announced his retirement by that point, so that was only ever intended to have one series. I think we could do a cast about Clarence. Because I remember at the time people were massively disappointed in it, and I think it's not as bad as its reputation. No, it really isn't. It really isn't. I mean, it's a very gentle comedy. It's not, again... like It's a bit repetitive. It's not exactly what everything you'd hope for from a Ronnie Barker vehicle, but it's not the cardboard tombstone I think it's become remembered as. So that's an example of a show which was only ever intended to run for one series, whereas all of the shows we're going to talk about today, they all run for one series. There is debate over whether one of them was intended to run for more than one series or not. We will come to that later. But all of these shows just ran for one series in 1988. And the first one we're going to talk about was one which, for a while, was on our little Holy Grail list of sitcoms. Ocho, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Brian Wilde did in 1988? He made a show called Wyatt's Watchdogs. There is very little to say about Wyatt's Watchdogs. I think our original plan was we'll watch Wyatt's Watchdogs and then we'll do a cast about it. And after two episodes, it's like there's so little to say so far that really I don't think the kind of memorable incident is coming that we could build an entire podcast around. And that was when we noticed the pattern that we looked at some other shows and it's like, well, hang on a minute, these are all from the same year. Wyatt's Watchdogs is just there. It's not the fantastically entertaining stinker you might hope it would be. I was really looking forward to this because I assumed that everybody was going to be overacting, the situations would be preposterously cliched, it would be like a non-self-aware chance in a million. And really, it's just, I mean, what's the level of the situations? Oh, we're trying to get into the meeting room and it's locked. So let's force the lock. Oh, we broke the handle. and uh, It turns out the meeting room we wanted was unlocked. I mean, they don't build an episode around that. But I would have just preferred something a bit crazier. 
it was quite disappointing because my expectation was going to be something along the lines of are you being served but with less subtlety and actually it wasn't like that at all which is a real shame first of all apart from Brian Wilde Trevor Bannister I didn't really know who anybody was to be honest. As far as the actors themselves are concerned, I was constantly thinking, oh, that part would have been perfect for this actor and that actor and so on, so on, so on. I didn't actually know any of the people who were in it. Does anybody feel particularly engaged with it? I haven't got the feeling that Trevor Bannister would be much happier doing something else. There doesn't seem to be any glint in his eye. At what point do you think they realised that this was not going to be a massive success? It just doesn't take flight, does it? And Brian Wilde plays it too straight. I think that's the thing. They've obviously seen less of the summer wine. He's good at these pompous, officious characters who fancy themselves as community leaders. And he's realistically pompous. There isn't anything too inflated about him, too goofy, too bumbling. He's just a rather irritable, self-important man. I suggested to yourself as we were watching, I think, the second episode, that it would have been perfect for Terry Scott. I'd like to yes. have seen himself just really sort of notching it up and constantly... Because the thing is that Trevor Bannister, as you say, he's sort of phoning in, I suppose you could say. He's not necessarily making the most of the role itself. Trevor Bannister's role in Are You Being Served is one particular scene which I would cite as an example of an actor getting not only everything out of a particular scene, but more. There's a particular episode from 1979 where Mrs. Slocum is staying in the store overnight and she's got it all arranged. She's got the bedding department arranged, everything and so on. And as you'd expect in sitcom style, everybody else in the department is all turned up and so on. So you've got this little scene where Trevor Bannister is getting into bed. If you were to describe it, it would simply be Trevor Bannister takes trousers off gets into bed. He manages to get so much out of that scene. You can really tell that he is an experienced stage actor because he is constantly giving little looks here and there, doing little bits of business, inventing little bits and pieces and so on. He gets so many laughs out of a scene which otherwise would have nothing in it and almost as if to prove the point, I've seen the Australian adaptation of that particular episode. And the actor who's playing his role just takes his trousers off and gets in the bed. So you think that there'd be a lot of scope for Trevor Bannister to do a lot of that kind of stuff in here. And I think that Terry Scott in Brian Wilde's role, like you say about how they're locked out of the room, for example, I think there'd be tons of little things that he could do with a scene like that. But it's not happening. And it's very bland as a result. Trevor Bannister could do with being knocked down a social class as well. I presume he's there to subvert Wyatt's pompousness, but it doesn't seem to come from any particular place. It's just like, oh, he's pompous, I think I'll make a little dig at him. Whereas if we get the sense that he doesn't quite fit in the neighbourhood, that he's... He doesn't have to play... Oh, blimey! Just some sense that he is at one remove from everybody else in the neighbourhood. He's been aware of it for a long time, and now he's taking place in this neighbourhood activity and Wyatt's pompousness is just beginning to remind him of all the hard time he got, all the little glances he got the first time he moved in so that any time he takes a dig at Wyatt it's a bit barbed 
I do get the impression that that is actually supposed to be what's going on, but it's not quite... Just, he feels like Malcolm from Terry and June. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, <laughs> because Malcolm is one of the highlights Yes, but of Terry Malcolm knows his place. <laughs> Terry in Terry and June is quite capable of making a fool of himself. He doesn't need Malcolm to come and put a little dig in. In fact, I would say that that relationship is slightly reversed. Malcolm's probably had things a little bit easier than Terry. And so anytime Malcolm takes a dig at Terry, it's really something for Terry to dig back at. We're talking about the complexities of the socioeconomic relationships between characters in Terry and June. I think I need to lie down. I did write my PhD on that. So I think it's fair to say that we didn't massively get on with White's Watchdogs. Nevertheless, a DVD release would be very welcome. This got us on to the topic of one series, Wonders of 1988, and earlier in the year, there had been a very much heavily trailed Keith Waterhouse scripted sitcom on the other side, made by Thames for ITV. It got star billing on the front cover of the TV Times, Andy Cap. Now, first of all, we have to address the elephant in the room here, Ocho. You once told me, before we'd actually seen Andy Cap itself, you once told me that your understanding was that Yorkshire Television had pulled an episode of Andy Cap, not halfway through the series, but halfway through its transmission. End of part one. I don't think we'll bother going back to the second half. Just hang I around. Had Hold an action told, about 10 minutes. Yes. I had been told that an episode of Andy Cap went to an ad break and never came back on YTV. <laughs> and it had been my memory that Andy Cap had not got to the end of its series. I remember it being a massive bomb, and we need a complete set of Yorkshire Television TV Times and every other region, to be honest, to check this, and every uh, PASB form. And the internet isn't enough, really, is it, sometimes? You need access to every single database that exists, some that don't even exist. Just let me know everything about every television program ever. Really, what I'm talking about is nuts. I know, I know, yeah. I still haven't been able to find out what this show, Nuts, that went out <laughs> one holiday morning on Yorkshire Television and then some weeks later went out on Central. And that appears to be the only sign of it. There was a program <laughs> called Nuts. I watched it. It had a brake bumper that went, Nuts! <laughs> and I would love to know more about what it was that I watched. This is an official Sitcom Club podcast interruption. While editing this section of the podcast, I became seized once again with the burning curiosity to discover more about nuts. And as it happens, I struck lucky and I finally found out what nuts was all about. So be sure to keep your eyes peeled on the Sitcom Club Twitter feed because there is a forthcoming podcast where Mooncat and I will discuss the story of Nuts and my quest to find it. We now return you to the Sitcom Club discussion of One Series Wonders of 1988. But back to Andy Cap. It's ahead of its time. It's on film, and there's no studio audience, and yet it's supposed to be a sitcom, and it doesn't work. One theory about why it doesn't work, and it's that extra-literal way of translating comics to the screen. I remember the BBC2 Jane had a similar yes. thing of trying to make yeah. it look... The best phrase I can come up with is the hierarchy of visual arts. In the olden days at the top, you'd probably had theatre. 
these days theatres kind of cast adrift a little bit. Then the cinema. Right now I think the cinema is king. Then there's television, which these days tries more and more to be like cinema and not be like itself. And then maybe there's a few steps between that, but I think somewhere near the bottom is comic books and comic strips. They're visual, so there is that desire to translate them from one medium to another and try and make them look as much as possible like their original form. But I think they're not taken seriously. They're treated like a bit of fluff. Okay, We've had this argument about comics growing up that happened in the 80s and 90s. And then, of course, comics tried way too hard. Oh, never mind. Old wounds. And so Andy Cap tries to look like an Andy Cap strip. So you even have occasionally... I'm, my memory is, I'm not sure I saw any examples of it. it, it they're even trying to walk like the, the way that the Reg Smythe characters are walking when you sort of see the mid-stride in the strip. There's definitely an attempt to make scenes look kind of flat. It feels like a bunch of comic strips strung together, which should be an okay way. I mean, there are some sitcoms which are just gags strung together to form half an hour, but this feels too episodic inside itself, so it means you'll have like a, maybe a 90-second scene, and then on to the next gag, which ties very tenuously with the last gag I found it kind of wearing yeah well the thing about Andy Cap is of course it's supposed to be seen in small doses you're supposed to see it in three frames a time not necessarily something that's supposed to extend to 25 minutes and so it does feel like you're constantly stopping starting stopping starting and it's just so mannered like the rent collector has the word rent written on a big black book again that thing of like trying to look as much like a comic strip as possible I don't know, it feels a bit patronising towards comic strips. It's trying to be a sitcom and then it's kind of going, but this is obviously a real sitcom. We're not going to make anything too recognisable. We're going to constantly advertise how artificial all this is. And Okay, no, I'm not an expert at all in comic strips and what have you, but I would hazard a guess that as amusing as it is to have the rent collector with rent written across his briefcase... That also is functional, isn't it? Because you've only got three strips. Or three frames, rather. So there is a purpose to that, and they found a nice, funny way of getting that information across. And yet, it's unnecessary in the TV show. I don't know, I got the impression that there was a sort of assumption being made that Andy Cap was universally adored, and therefore this was just the next natural progression of it, whereas, okay, it's an amusing little comic strip in the middle, but there's something about this I'm not getting. There's something about this I'm not really picking up on. I feel as if I'm sort of out of the loop. runs in the US, and yet this didn't feel very export-friendly to me. That That was another interesting thing. Part of me was thinking, is the reason they've shot it on film to make it more exportable, but then it it seems still locked into its recognisable cartoonish Hartlepool world in a way that I don't think US stations would really go for. Also, James Borlam does not look like Andy Cap. Yes, he's got... You can see his eyes. I know this sounds silly to expect a, an actor to cover his eyes throughout, but hey, you're the ones who decided to adapt Andy Cap, make him look like Andy Cap. And you can see his, his hair's way too long. In fact, I can't, I'm not even sure I've ever seen Andy Cap's hair. I think they should have given him a buzz cut... And somehow maybe worked out a way of giving him a flat cap that covered his eyes. 
Get a translucent material so that you can just barely see through, but we can't see in. Now, okay, point of order. If you're going to get an actor of the calibre of James Bolan, do you think that he would really want to play the part in that manner? I mean, if they actually said to James Bolan... Well, remember, for example, we were watching Kinvig, and then I suddenly realised at the end of it that one of the aliens had been Simon Williams. But otherwise, you wouldn't have a clue, because he was completely made up. Would you not think that he would say, what, you want me to cover my eyes and be pretty much unrecognisable? Well, you know, that's not the kind of role that I play. He's done radio. It's your, vo- your voice will carry it. Do you want to do this right? What's more important, handicap or you? Well, I guess I'm not making any accusations. When he played Howard Wilson in, I think it was 2006, he didn't attempt at all to replicate Wilson's voice. It was pure, 100% James Paulham. He looked like him. He was made up to look like him, obviously, because that would have been bloody weird if it was just James Bolam looking and sounding like James Bolam doing promotional material for new tricks. But he's Harold Wilson. Yeah, he no, there was no no attempt at all. He didn't try to do a Chris Emmett or anything. So actually, maybe they should have got Chris Emmett for the role. Yes, yes, that works for me. There are overarching sitcom plots. Episode two is Andy is a reformed character, and everybody's a bit weirded out by it. He tries to give up the drinking and the gambling, and I can't remember what the plot is for episode one. I know it's there. I know it becomes clear after a while. Is that not it? Exactly as you've described it. He tries to become a reform character. I gives thought up that was all... show two. No, show two is when Flo tries to become like Andy. Oh, he's... Ah, okay. You see, they're, they're, they're blurring into each other. Now, we should mention, actually, that Flo is played by Paula Tilbrook, who these days is much better known as Betty Eagleton in Emmerdale. She works quite well on the role. Yes, yeah. But, yeah, overall there was just there's something about this. It's a nice little experiment and what have you, but I don't know. It will be okay as five-minute slots. You mentioned Jane before. Should they have done it like Jane? Was that like ten minutes? It was, and if I remember correctly, that was actors in front of two-dimensional frames should they have done Andy Cap like that no i think they should have done Andy Cap less like a comic strip i mean play with it a little bit so that maybe the rent collector's book does have rent on it but in a slightly more realistic way and less of this okay here is your three frame gag and here's another three frame gag and here's another be a bit more willing to mold the character rather than the entire format to television have it flow more like a sitcom. It didn't work. I'm sure I remember people at the time saying, did you see Andy Cap? The next show is one I remember. I, th- I have a feeling maybe someone like Phil Cool made a joke about it. <laughs> Dog Food Dan and the Carmarthen Cowboy. Now, this is going to require a bit of explanation because this is not a show which has, the best of my knowledge, seen the light of day since 1988. I've never seen it repeated anywhere. And these days it's actually easier to get hold of the original drama on DVD. But this is a David Nobbs piece, which was originally a single play for ITV in 1982. David Dacre as Dogford Dan and Gareth Thomas as the Kamar from Cowboy. And the basic premise is that they are both lorry drivers and they meet up in their roadside cafe and in the original play they also communicate with CB radio which was still a thing then they are 
to use horrible modern expression, bigging themselves up. Ugh. Can't believe I just said that. Basically, Boasting. they. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they are embellishing the tales of their social life, their nightlife, and so on. They're both married, but for one reason or another, they're finding that their marriage is a little bit dull. And so they go looking for excitement elsewhere, and unbeknownst to the other, because their mutual wives feel the same, they end up meeting each other's wives because they don't know this at any point during the play. And so you've got this ongoing situation which plays out over the course of the hour. And then six years later, that is adapted for this six-part series. goes under the same name. It's got a lovely little theme tune by Richard Stilgoat and performed by Lonnie Donegan. Drug Food Dan is now played by Malcolm Story and the Kamara from Cowboy is Peter Blake. Now, the CB radio aspect is gone, but otherwise they meet up in the cafe and they continue to tell these tall tales about their nightlife. Of course, as a viewer, we get to see exactly what's happening. We get to see them meeting each other's wives, unbeknownst to themselves. And then we see how they then elaborate the story the following day and embellish it and so on. But it's a really nice little show, actually. But I can see why it hit problems immediately. Episodes 1 and 2 are essentially the first hour of the play. The play is done, it it, it unfolds in a traditional way. There is humour. It's not so much that there are no big laughs, but you wouldn't really notice as much because they're being played in a very naturalistic way to no audience. And episodes 1 and 2 of this traditional sitcom version of Dog Food Den just seems to be exactly the same script. And so some of the stuff that's mildly humorous is being played more as here's a big laugh for the studio audience like poke 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 that gets a huge reaction from the audience but to me it doesn't seem strong enough to be a load-bearing gag and it unfolds at a very leisurely pace so when we have an argument between Aubrey Owen the Carmarthen cowboy and Gwyneth his wife it's just two people arguing in a room for a long time it would be okay in a play, but in a sitcom, it's like, I don't know, we need more wit, more crackling lines, or more incident. So I can imagine that people would have watched the first two episodes and tuned out. And it's a shame, because after that, it does begin to develop quite nicely. Now, the thing is, we need to turn the attention to ourselves for a moment. We have to look inwards. Are we looking at this in the wrong way because no. now hang on most people I think it's fair to say who were watching the six part series in 1988 did not immediately beforehand watch the ITV play of 1982 but that's what I'm saying is the problem you're not watching it going oh well I can see what's happening here this is the first two thirds of the play translated to the first third of a six part sitcom you're going well, this isn't very funny so, I mean, if you come to this saying, hey, everybody, it's a sitcom in the good traditional way we do sitcoms in 1988. Come and watch our sitcom. And then you're you're watching an, a humorous play with a studio audience laughing a bit too loud at things that are really just kind of helping keeping the humor bubbling over. We're actually cutting this a bigger break than audiences at the time would have. We can see that this is a play that's been adapted into a different form, people at the time would just see it as a failure of 
this work to be its own form. If you're going to turn up a television centre, you've got a choice on one side is the over-the-top farcical boffle laughs of White's Watchdogs. But this is offering <laughs> something a little bit more refined, a little bit more subtle. So it doesn't need to have big punchy lines and situations yeah, all but the it, time. It gets the big... Like I say, he, he's talking about his wife poking the fire, but of course poke, poke, poke can be interpreted as something else. And it just gets a bigger laugh than it deserves, whereas in the original play, it's just a little distraction. There's humour, you know, throwaway gags, and then there's load-bearing gags, and this has humorous lines made into load-bearing gags. Do you know, it's, it's funny that you actually use that expression it gets a bigger laugh than it deserves because when Leonard Roster was playing Reggie Perrin he had an argument with David Nobbs about the precise wording of a particular line in the script one week and David Nobbs convinced him to use the wording according to the text he plays the character with that line that evening the line in question gets a big laugh from the audience. David Nobbs says to him afterwards, I was right about that line, wasn't I? And Lad Roster says, no, you were wrong. And so was the audience. <laughs> so we then have the problem. We're looking down the barrel at the possibility of a 90-minute story that's been stretched three hours. But it does find somewhere to develop that I don't think the original does which is because of their phony baloney affairs. It's not a spoiler, is it? Yeah, it's not a spoiler to say that these affairs do not become full-blown affairs. I don't think there's any real possibility of that. It's not that kind of show, is it? So what happens is, is that because of the boasting that the guys are making to each other, because the women have been made to feel a bit more desirable, the original marriages seem to get a little bit strengthened. The couple start taking the original couples, the the married couples, start taking a bit more interest in themselves again. It does find a way of making this story last twice as long. And the thing is, is that the play has a very definite ending. And I could see that it was building up beautifully to this end. It's like, great, this is going to be a self-contained six-episode show. And it's building up to that ending. This is going to be so great. In fact, you know what? You've got six episodes. You've got twice as long to play with. Maybe we're going to see... Maybe the ending of the play will actually be the ending of episode five. And episode six can be the fallout. The ending never comes. The ending is, come back for series two of Dog Food Dan. And there is no series two. And there, there needn't be a series two. Thankfully, unlike Phil Fitch and Cat Flap, didn't actually have the announcer say, and there'll be more hilarious adventures with Dogfoot Dan and the Carving Cowboy later on in the year, and you're just left hanging for the next 28 years. <laughs> but, okay, I suppose you could say that it's probably more suited to four episodes rather than six. No, I think it's okay. I think with that change that happens to the original marriages because of the fake affairs. I think that was a nice way of expanding it. I think it could have lasted six episodes. Maybe episode five should have been the cliffhanger of, tell you what, let's, um, you and your wife and me and my wife, let's meet up. Cliffhanger. And then we see the meeting takes place in the middle of episode six. And then we have a nice 15 to 10 minutes of 
of crazy fallout and everybody, everything ends generally okay because we don't actually want to see these people suffer. Okay, here is the breaking news. I bet you never thought you'd hear that expression used in regards to Dr. Dan and the Camarvan Cowboy. But no, here is breaking news. Diktat from the head of BBC2 Entertainment and everything. You've got your wish that the first five episodes of the series are going to be the story told so far. So at the end of episode five is where we got to at the end of the play. And episode six is then going to continue the story. Now you're going to make a choice. So your choice is between episode six really sort of becoming, I don't know, more like a sort of play for today. When the wives find out what the husbands have been up to, and then by extension what they've been up to, then they're absolutely livid, heartbroken, furious, and the whole thing just then... I mean, it makes EastEnders look like Odd Man Out in episode six. It, it really ends in a massive downer, which is not what anybody wants. So your alternative is that episode six is like the untransmitted final episode of Secret Army, where we see the characters about 30 years hence. Well, they all start talking about communism and... No, oh, communism but... is as bad as Nazism. <laughs> no, we just we the see them. Effects don't quite work. Apparently, we see them thirty years in the future, and they're reminiscing about what could have been, and so on, and so on. And we actually find out then what happened to the two marriages, and so on. That's your choice. You you got to pick one. Which one's it going to be? No, <laughs> I have to pick. It's completely arbitrary. You're not the boss of history. No, here's what I pick. You have an extremely humorous, awkward dinner between the two with lots of darts going back and forth. Strange little things being said that are then backpedaled. And then nothing's ever quite comes out into the open. And then at the end, we just somehow have a scene between Dan and Helen and Aubrey and Gwyneth where it's a bit like, you know, brief encounter just that, you know, thanks for coming back to me sort of situation. <laughs> just a weird little acknowledgement that, you know, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on, but it's okay. We're better together. It doesn't have, you know, it's, it's not your option. Is a downer ending or a 30 years later. I thought you were going to say, right, either there's a massive punch up and screaming at each other or a four way. No. Oh, as if I would suggest that. Having said that, has there ever actually been a sitcom about all that kind of thing? I'm not aware of any sitcom called Swingers or anything like that, but it wouldn't surprise me if it had been attempted, at least. I've never actually seen the film Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. None have I, but yes, But okay. I have seen a still yeah. of it, which has, which is four people sitting in bed. And there was a TV series... Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. What's there? I don't remember any of this. When did this happen? Synopsis. The TV series had to be somewhat different from the R-rated 1969 movie. And uh, yes, it's about the desire of the couple to uh, become a quartet. Uh, so there's your answer. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, the TV series. Do, do you know that I've been under a complete and utter misapprehension for the past 45 seconds? I thought you were talking about Rita, Sue, and Bob too. There's one more person. Well, yes, it counts to four. <laughs> but I was thinking, I don't remember a TV series of that. I remember the film four film, but I don't remember what the hell did they make a spin-off of that? 
And, and, and for whom? So, 1973, Rita... No. <laughs> you got me there. Rita, Sue, Bob, Carol, Ted, and Peter Alice, and their desire to play a round, but it's a round of golf. <laughs> I can't remember... Oh, Dog Food Den, that's what we'd been talking about. <laughs> so, talking about people who want to get it on... <laughs> what? This, that's... <sighs> Fine, yes. What? It's, it's a horrible link. It's a truck driver's gear change of a link. <laughs> well, no, that is quite Okay, fitting. sorry. For, everybody forget I said that, and Mooncat is going to give you a perfect example of how to transition from Randy Lorry drivers to Lovelon lock keepers. Well, certainly in Dog for Dan and the Camarvan Cowboy, I think uh, Malcolm's story, he's, he's, he's somewhat in need of a, a bit of a haircut. You know, he's, he's sort of let it sort of grow out a bit. And the same could be said for 60s music heartthrob David Essex, uh, who appeared in a sitcom called... He's, he's not 60s, is he? 70s. Seven. Ah, oh, for fuck's sake. All right, then. Okay, well, fuck it. All right, I mean, I was going to take the piss there and say, well, Dog for Dan was uh, from 1988, and so was the Essex uh, with, with, with David River. <laughs> well, this is the one that I think we talked about most. We got fascinated by how it didn't work, partially because of the way it broke away from usual shows of that type. This is going to be a will-they-want-their show. And in a will-they-want-their show, the point at which they say, can we? Would you like to? Usually, probably, what, about series six? What was it here, episode three, where the topic gets brought up? It moved really fast. Yeah, it's alluded to before then, but it's... Yeah, by the episode three, it's, it, it's out in the open. Not like that. You're thinking they're going to go and just do it, aren't they? And then the rest of it's going to be the fallout. <laughs> I thought you meant like that, you know, that sketch on the Fast Show. <laughs> no, episode we're... four, they do it for the first time, and the second time, and the third time, the fourth and fifth and sixth <laughs> time. Episode five, seventh, eighth. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking of, of anything quite as overt as that. We need to explain who's who and what's what and what's going on here. This is. A show which, as legend has it, was not originally intended to be a sitcom. Which makes it all the more puzzling, because you think that by the time you get to inviting the studio audience, you think, well, the die's pretty much been cast by this point, hasn't it? So, nevertheless, the producer of the series did actually say afterwards that it was more intended to be something along the lines of a romantic light-hearted drama. I suppose the kind of thing that you would get on, say, like a Sunday evening. And it wasn't really sort of geared up for big belly laughs from an audience. This was, I believe, the first television series for David Essex. And he is playing a lockkeeper. And yes, I did have to have the entire concept of locks and lockkeeping explained to me. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell it was. We ended up watching a YouTube video, didn't we? So, he is playing Davy Jackson, who is supposed to be an ex-convict. I don't think it was for, like, GBH or anything like that, but... Anyway, he's now this lockkeeper, and this little village, and it's supposed to be somewhere down southwest, that kind of thing. And he's got around him his deputy, Tom, who's played by Sean Scott, who's later on much more recognisable in the bill, and his Auntie Betty, 
played by Velma Hauling, buddy. She's not very nice. Initially, her character quirk is that she's a communist and that she goes around making speeches and there's nobody really there to listen to her. But yes, as it goes on, we realise that Betty's character quirk is that she's a horrible, horrible person who will ruin somebody else's happiness for her own gain. What exactly is her main objection anyway to a change in status quo? I don't know. <laughs> and I say that after having watched those six episodes. I mean, she pimps out relatives. Well, literally. Not far off. Doesn't she try and get him to sleep with his cousin? Yes, I think there is a bit of that going on. Yes. The only chap to prepare for I've got any time for in the whole thing is Colonel Danvers, which is David Ryle. Because even David Essex himself, he's like a sort of knockoff Mulberry. Yes, I remember you saying that this was the show you feared Mulberry was going to be. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And he's always coming up with these little sort of platitudes and rhymes and poems and so on, but actually he's just being a pain in the arse. Now, first episode, we have the arrival of Sarah MacDonald, who, funnily enough, in case you weren't aware from the surname, she's Scottish, and she reminds you of that fact every episode for the next six weeks and she turns up she's an artist or some bloody thing and she turns up in her boat or whatever and then it turns out there's something wrong with the boat and then therefore she's bloody well stranded in the west country like the prisoner or something like that anyway (laughs) right so she then sort of has a bunk up with davy jackson in his cottage and what have you and it then becomes the sort of will they won't they business and all this kind of stuff like i said before it it has the feel of something which is not supposed to have a studio audience, probably not supposed to have any VT at all, and would probably work as four 45-minute episodes rather than six half hours. But nevertheless, it is like that. It is a straightforward half-an-hour sitcom. And I was talking last week about the appearance of BBC sitcoms at this time. I know you said it might be down to the one-inch videotape. It's got that sort of washed out, all the colour drained from it sort of look, which doesn't really help as well. But, having said that, we did actually persevere right to the end with this one. So... Well, first, let me rush to a little bit of the defence of David Essex. I agree with you about the first, maybe, couple of episodes. Oh, he's on bearable he's in love with himself i mean the first thing we see is him sitting in a deck chair and he's just like you see here a man at peace he says to his aunt and it's like oh this show's been made for people who fancy david essex there is a bit where he kind of beams into the camera and i don't know it's just kind of like yeah i'm amazing and as the show progresses he gets knocked off his game Things get uncertain. He is no longer a man at peace. He's a man who wants things. He's a man who wants things that he can't necessarily have, doesn't know if he should have. And then it really starts to work. His performance, because he's no longer completely self-enclosed and self-satisfied, his performance gets more likable. Because his platitudes are not coming out because, yeah, I'm completely in control. He's saying things to try and calm down situations, to try and regain control of matters. It's just that the first impressions, huh? I suppose it really should be a case of, well, if you don't like him, watch him. Later he will try and earn your uh, your interest. Thing is, though, 
has he already lost your interest by the time you get to episode three? If well, he that's, that's what I said. First impressions are, are, are a problem here. It's a bit like I said about Dog Food Dan. Those first two don't quite play out with the right pace and the right tone. And by the time it does improve, I imagine a lot of the audience have gone elsewhere. Maybe why it's Watchdogs and Handicap are the same and we bailed on them after two episodes each. I seem to recall saying to yourself around about probably episode two or three, do you know who should have been playing? Davy. Not David Essex at all. It should have been Paul Nicholas. He would have been perfect for this because David Essex's delivery in this is quite sort of slow paced and it doesn't necessarily lend itself to the studio audience environment. And I was thinking, somebody, I think I actually mentioned Carl Homan at one point, but also I was thinking, Paul Nicholas, he'd be perfect for this. This is exactly the kind of role that he should be doing. And blow me, I go looking up the database, and here is an article from the Daily Mirror in October 1988, which says... That nice, curly-haired Paul Nicholas did a BBC pilot show as a likeable lockkeeper who gets involved with a girl. But he was so busy making Bust, the drama series on ITV, that he couldn't do the BBC One series. So the equally nice, curly-haired David Essex took over to star in his first telly series, The River. So there you have it. It was supposed to be good old Vince Howell, Powell, Hill, whatever the hell his name was not Just Good Friends. It was supposed to be him all along. You've already said one way it breaks away from the normal formula. Things actually move over the six episodes. We don't get the illusion of movement. The other thing is is that Katie Murphy's character is said to have genuine mental and emotional problems. It's a bit odd, isn't it? It's one of the reasons that I'm not <laughs> entirely sure it works as the kind of sitcom it is. Yeah, I mean, she's not portrayed as somebody playing mental illness for laughs. It is that she admits herself that she's got certain sort of neurotic tendencies and so on, and she has a problem trusting people and what have you. But it never sort of falls into the wrong side where it could easily do so. I think she's quite a difficult character to warm to. I'm just thinking about how horrible Betty is. Because we've sort of alluded to it. Betty takes against her so strongly... What are the subterfuges she takes to try and make this girl go away and make sure that any possibility of a relationship between Sarah and Davy is wrecked? Right. So I'm going to come up with something which is going to sound like it's just some flight of fancy on my part, kind of bullshit I'd normally come out with. And then there's going to be a twist at the end of it. Right then, she makes sure that Davy can get it up. Now, you're thinking, oh, bloody hell, don't be so bloody stupid. Actually, she does. She spikes his drink. I'd even forgotten about that. So we're saying, will they want the, they definitely want to. And yes, one episode starts with, they didn't. We have a discussion about erectile dysfunction, which is a bit different. <laughs> How do you make a character be selfish but watchable? Because Betty is not that. It's one thing for a sitcom to be about characters who want something and other characters who don't want them to have that thing. But Betty is the villain. She is the villain of the piece. And then we'll just have scenes where she's got normal left lines. It's like, no, she is working towards making somebody unhappy. She's really working towards making two people unhappy. She'd be okay if Davy was content, but she'll take unhappy and status quo continuing. It's not, I mean, I talk about Warden Hodges. She's worse than Warden Hodges. That's what I'm saying. The business with Hodges is that he gets his comeuppance. Right, that's the thing. There's the difference between an antagonist 
and a villain. Hodges does some pretty awful stuff, like the auctioning of the oranges. Slipping Davy Bromite, that's poisoning! That's pretty bad. And the thing is that, yeah, a character like Hodges, for example, always gets his comeuppance, because that's what he's there for. Now, Auntie Betty never gets her comeuppance. And, as you say, she's still given lines that you're supposed to laugh along with. Tom, the deputy lockkeeper, ends up in the lock every time, every episode he plunges. She, she never gets pushed in, does she? I mean, that's what I want the last episode to be. The last episode is, is that Betty gets heaved into the lock and doesn't come back up. <laughs> Just remembered I didn't explain the bit about pimping out the cousin, but that's another horrible thing Betty does. <laughs> Calls Davy's cousin and says, Davy wants you in the worst way. <laughs> and the cousin goes, okay. And then gets gets in some sexy nightwear and goes into his bed and spoils another chance for Davy and Sarah. So let's spoil the ending. The ending gets indecisive. Should we spoil the ending? Because this is the only one of the shows that we're talking about which is actually available on DVD. If you don't want to know what the ending of The River is, tune in next time, download next time, The Sitcom Club, because we're now going to say goodbye to you. Any particular pertinent points that get made after this point, you can probably live without. Because now we're going to talk about the ending of the river. And if you want to experience it the way it should be, enjoy your DVD. So, the ending. Were you expecting this to have a tied up, neat, conclusive ending? I wasn't sure. And then there came a point when I thought, right, this is the neat, tied up, conclusive ending. Then at one point, I thought, oh my god, they've gone for a downer ending. I mean, I thought they'd gone for a down ending, and then I thought, have they actually gone for a full-blown downer? In a newspaper interview to promote The River, David Essex actually says he's only going to do one series of it. He doesn't spoil the ending for anybody, he simply says that he tends to get bored with projects if they go on too long, so he only wanted to do the one series. Now, if you've read that ahead of seeing it, you'd think that there's going to be a nice, neat, proper conclusion to all this. And this has been a show that does not press the reset button at the end of every episode. There's progress. I think that's why, despite not really finding it all that funny, we kept coming back to it because it was like it was fascinating to see something so traditional in one way break away and keep moving. So uh, there have been failed attempts for Davy and Sarah to get it on. And in the end, Betty really sort of reaches a low point and just somehow persuades Tom that there's a fire in Davy's bedroom, so he runs in and sprays a fire extinguisher on them. I'd forgotten about that. And for I've... some reason, I mean, Sarah's been having issues, apparently, and she decides that this, this thing that within a couple of questions will very be quickly established as deliberate sabotage on Betty's part... Oh, it's just not meant to be. It's like, no, you, somebody has deliberately tried to stop you getting what you want. So I'm then thinking, oh, the the ending is the villain wins. And she puts on a snakes and ladders outfit. <laughs> Dresses up very island. And says goodbye to everybody. That's an odd scene, isn't it? Have you lined up? Oh, yeah, the vicar then snogs her, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Just to quickly recap, I'd forgotten that Auntie Betty convinces Tom that there's a fire upstairs. I thought she just said, listen, do us a favour, we just run upstairs, we'll 
hose and just, you know, go bonkers. And he's just gone along with it for some reason. So what I thought was going to happen, for some reason, despite somebody deliberately trying to mess up their lives of them, Davy and Sarah just, oh, well. And Sarah says goodbye, gets in her barge, and I thought, right, okay, I know what's going to happen now. She's going to get to a certain extent, and then Davy's going to pull off his waistcoat and jump in and say, I'm coming with you. The lock is all yours, Tom. I quit. And that doesn't happen. And then <laughs> the barge explodes. <laughs> For no reason at all. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's explained that Tom, I guess it's not deliberate sabotage on Tom's part. Just something about how he repairing the barge, he didn't properly connect the gas thing. God, how awful would that have been if Tom had just like winked at the camera? <laughs> he does a Ronald Lacey. And then it turns out that, of course, he hasn't been killed. Because things have been so weird, I'm sort of thinking, is that going to be the ending? She's been blown to bits, because I just think it takes slightly too long before we see her again. The The grammar of these things usually means you expect the person who's been in the explosion but is perfectly fine to become visible at a certain point, and I think it goes past that point. So the program just ends, there's no end credits, there's no end music, it's just silence. Fade to black. Sarah turns up, I think she's on the back of a barrel, paddling, and she starts hitting Davy. And it's like, oh, the relationship's been reset back to the antagonism and the distrust. So if there was a second series, for some reason, there's now an excuse to pretend that the last few episodes of character development didn't happen. Ah, What do you think a good ending would have been for the river? Is there any ambiguity about whether this series is going to come back or not? Are you wanting to leave the door open for a second series? In 2015? No, in in, in 1988 itself. Because that's the key thing, isn't it? I mean, just because David Essex says he's not going to do another series of it, maybe they'll get Paul Nicholas to come back over to the Beep and do series two. If we're to believe that it's just one series... No, if you're going to do two series, then you can't have all that movement in the first series. Okay, so we're going to say it's just one series by itself. Okay, then, so she says goodbye to everybody. She gets in the boat. Off she goes. Be serious now. Come on, seriously. What on earth makes you think I wasn't going to be serious? Oh, you're going to have, like, Cookie Monster leap out of the bushes. <laughs> and again, what made you think that that wasn't going to be a serious suggestion? Anyway, I do have a suggestion legitimately here, but I'm not saying this just to be daft. Go for it, I- okay. I'm putting this forward as a serious suggestion, but I don't think you're going to go with it. it you-, you did emphasise before that... It doesn't always hit the reset button at the end of each episode. And also, I would say that there are elements of this which are atypical. So, I'm going to say that as Davy and Tom are walking up the path, they suddenly say, hang on a minute, where's Auntie Betty got to? And it turns out that Sarah and Auntie Betty actually have been a bunk on the barge. Actually, Just how that stupid was, is Sarah? That, no, hang, hang on. That was the reason. You said you wanted to know the reason why Betty was trying to break them up the whole time. That was why. That's also why Sarah is so willing to let a silly little incident with a hosepipe just end everything because she's also come to the realisation as to what's going on. So that's how it ends. It ends up with Sarah and Auntie Betty getting it together on the barge. 
I think Betty's a bad bet. I think Sarah would realise that, saying, yeah, but you're a horrible person. Why didn't you just say something? We had enough scenes together. She did all these horrible things because she couldn't really say how she felt, but she felt that she had no choice, ultimately, but to just let it all out. We didn't see that scene. No, she said, yeah, but I know what you're willing to do when you want to get what you want, and I'm very emotionally fragile. You're a bad bet. And she pushes Betty off the boat, and David Ryle comes up from below deck. (laughs) But maybe Sarah has been won over by Betty's suggestion of a socialist utopia. Maybe they're going off to campaign together. I don't want to see Betty get what she wants at all in any way, shape, or form. So the river, it doesn't work, but it's fascinating. I think we would have been surprised if we'd said to ourselves, you know which one? If we're going to watch White's Watchdogs, Andy Kep, Dog Food Dan and the river, which one's going to hold our interest the most? I think we'd have been surprised if we'd said, oh yeah, the river, that's going to be the one that we binge watch. Just in case anybody's sort of thinking, well, you guys, you've got very, very strong constitution for this kind of stuff and we know some of the programs that you sat through previously we got through six minutes of Laura and Disorder the other day and I said no I've had enough <laughs> of this forget it so we don't just watch anything and we could have stopped the river at any point but we chose to go on so they were the one series wonders from 1988 I am actually going to do the research that we actually should have done at the beginning of this episode and check properly multiple databases to confirm categorically that Andy Cap did go out in all regions right to the bitter end and we'll update you next week on the outcome I'm willing of that to search. be contradicted on this it was my memory that it didn't get all six episodes it was somebody else's memory that it was and a half episodes one show that we should just mention in passing by the way that if we don't mention now we're never going to mention it at all Funnily enough, one program that did actually get pulled mid-run in one region is the Eric Sykes-Johnny Spate golfing comedy, The 19th Hole. And the reason that we're not talking about that in this podcast is because, rather annoyingly, that fell into 1989, rather than 88. We got... How many episodes did we get into that? Two episodes? That was enough. It was replaced in the TSW region by Please Sir, which I've got a funny feeling we might be coming back to later on in this run. Anyway, next week we are going to take a leap into the 1990s. And we're going to have a look at a couple of shows which are remarkably similar. And not just because they were panned by the critics, but also because they are rather similar constructs, even to the point where some of the situations and some of the dialogue is actually remarkably similar. One of our Holy Grail shows, Honey for Tea, starring Felicity Kendall and Leslie Phillips from 1994. And this is a mark of quality, made in 1990, but not shown until two years later. Hey! Land of Hope and Gloria with Sheila Ferguson from Thames. And both shows concern American lady arriving in Britain to some stuffy old institution that needs a damn good shake-up and all that goes on with that. In the meantime, if you've got anything for us at all, tweet us at the sitcom club. Don't forget to visit our all-new, improved website at sitcomclub.com where you can hear all the previous episodes of the sitcom club going back two years in the meantime Ocho have you been Ocho? I have goodbye and I've been Mooncat cheerios this has been the sitcom club